0: have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Exodus chapter 34 as we come to a close in our series God Has a Name. And uh, just as a way of announcement, next week um, we are going to be kicking off a new series entitled Invisible War. The Invisible War, there we go, got that out. And that is about a fight against Satan, the world, and the flesh. And so that'll be a whole new series on spiritual warfare that will take us all the way uh, to Christmas. But for today, we are going to be back in Exodus chapter 34, um, but we'll come to an end in this series. And I just want to say again, uh, if you are a guest today, Welcome. So glad that you are here, that you chose to spend time uh, with us. As Luke said, our hope is that you will go from feeling just like a guest to feeling like family. Um, we truly are an imperfect family who are sent in need of one perfect person together, and that person is Jesus Christ. And so if you do have a Connect card, you didn't get a chance to put it in the offering basket, you can put it on the welcome table out front, and uh, we'll be sure and grab that and try to serve you to the best of our ability. So, Exodus 34, I'm going to get a running start in verse 5, but we're going to focus specifically today on verse 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and stood there with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, for the last five weeks, we've been walking through this passage line by line, and I know what you've been thinking from the very first Sunday, and that is, what in the world is up with the ending in verse 7? Like, what's up with that closing line about how the Lord punishes, quote, the children and their children for the sin of their parents. I mean, if God really is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, how can he just go all MMA on his own kids, right? That's the question I know that's been in the back of our minds. And before I answer that question for you, um, I just want to say this. We don't get to, as Christians, pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to believe and follow. Um, as disciples of Jesus, Jesus himself believed in the Bible. and We believe that this Bible is God's authority. It's his word to us. And therefore, um, what this means is from cover to cover, when we come to a text like this, as hard as it may seem on the surface, uh, we want to be a people who don't just kind of push the text away, but we deal with it. We wrestle with it. We probe it. We question it. And then at the end of the day, we want to say yes to what God says yes to and no to what God says no to, even if it's a hard pill to swallow. And if you're hearing This morning, you're like, man, that's just not where I am. I'm not the kind of person who I really believe that this Bible is actually God's word to us, um, or I actually want to pick and choose the parts that I want to follow. I want you to know um, we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. As we said before, this is a place where you can belong even before you believe. But please hear me. If you approach the Bible, with this idea of i'm going to pick and choose what i want and you're basically letting your emotions and the world tell you what to believe about god at the end of the day you're going to end up with a god that is a figment of your imagination uh, you are going to end up with a, a, a pitiful and a weak counterfeit god um, that will be unable to help you at all god that you've made up out of the laboratory of your own mind and as a result though you will end up with a god who is like you so if you're republican guess what he'll be Republican. Or if you're a Democrat, she'll be a Democrat, right? Uh, though you'll end up with a God who loves all that you love and hates what you hate. At the end of the day, you will still end up having a flat and a boring life because you will worship a flat and boring God that simply does not exist. And therefore, because of that, we need to be a people who get our theology, not from the world or pop culture, but instead get our theology about God from God. And if you will commit to doing this, here's my promise to you. What you will discover Is that though God will be different than ever than what you expect him to be, he will also be more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And that's what we've been discovering in this series. And just to kind of give you a quick recap to catch you up or in case you have forgotten in the first week, what we discovered about God is that because he is relational, because he is a God who wants to know you and be known by you, whenever Moses comes to him and says, God, show me your glory, show me what you're like, God says, okay, and then what does he do? He declares his name, which seems anticlimactic, but in in the ancient Near East, to declare your name is to say, this is my identity. This is who I am. And as you see on the screen, here's what God has told us about himself. The first thing he said is that I am the Lord in all caps, or that could be translated in Hebrew, I am who I am, meaning what you need to know about God, first and foremost, is that whatever he is like, he is like that all the time. He is unchanging. He is constant. And the reason this is important, because look what he goes on to say in verse 6. He says, therefore, what you need to know is that I am always compassionate and gracious. That word compassionate, as we talked about, is a feeling word. It's a feeling like a mother has towards her child or a father has towards his son. I think about my son yesterday, um, who, after much motivation, scored his first goal ever in a soccer game. Uh, Yes, it's incredible. Thank you, Robert. And so... um, My son, like, basically just, like, barely jogs in most of our games, but uh, yesterday before the game, I was like, if you'll score a goal today, I'll give you a whole brand new Lego set, and apparently he had a lot in the tank, Andrew, after all, and so he scored a goal, And, and though I was cool, calm, and collective as his coach on the sidelines, like, way to go, Wyatt, on the inside, I was like, "Go!" You know, I, I was like want to go hug him and just tackle. him. this awesome because he's my son, right? And that's what's behind compassion. It is the feeling that a father or a mother has towards their child. And then the word gracious, it's not a feeling word, but it's an action word, meaning that God's feelings and actions are always aligned. He doesn't just look at you and say, oh, that breaks my heart. That's the way it is. Like, no, God actually does something. He moves towards people in their brokenness and their need. That's what we learned in week two. In week three, we talked about how God is slow to anger. Or in the Hebrew, it literally means long of nostrils, if you remember. And the idea behind this word picture is that God is not volatile. Uh, God is not ready to fly off the handle at the slightest infraction, but instead he is very patient. He's slow to anger. And then Lastly, if we talked about how God is abounding in steadfast love, he is like the husband who is jealous for his bride, who continues to pursue her despite her unfaithfulness. And this is just crazy to me, because what this tells us is that God is the kind of God. He's like a husband who goes off to work, and then he comes home, and when he gets home, he realizes that the house is a mess, the kids are going crazy, the dinner is burnt, his wife has cheated on him three or four times, but he still says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to continue to pursue you. I'm going to be to you as I should be, even if you're not as you should be to me. Like That's the kind of love that God has for you and for me. It's incredible. This is what we have learned from God. We've learned it all just right there from verse 6. And today, as we come to an end of the series, we're going to walk now line by line through verse 7. And eventually, we're going to get to the part about God punishing kids. But first, we see, God says, what I want you to notice next about me is that I am maintaining love to thousands. Um, the word maintaining there can also be translated as protecting or guarding, and it's a word we see used all over the scriptures that basically communicates this idea that lo- God's love for you that we just talked about is guarded. So in the highs and the lows, in your good times and your bad times, right, whenever you're firing on all cylinders or you feel like you are completely like just botching it, like God's love cannot be taken away from you. He has a relentless love, a limitless love. It is a love, as we talked about last week, that is never stopping, never given up, always and forever Top of love. And because of this, if you look back at verse 7, what God says next is this, that he is forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That word that is used there for forgiving literally means to carry or take away. And listen to this. It is mentioned 658 times in the Old Testament alone. A lot of times when we think about God, we look at the God of the Old Testament, we're like, oh yeah, he's like the old grumpy man who like gets up on the wrong side of the bed and is like, I'm just waiting for you to mess up. I've got my eyes on you and I'm going to stomp you out as soon as you screw up. And then like we get to the New Testament, we're like, oh, well, God, the son, Jesus, he's like the son who went off to college, got an education, and came back with this whole new teaching on love and grace. When the reality is, we see this idea of forgiveness in the Bible 658 times before we ever even get to Jesus. And if you notice, what is God forgiving of? Well, it says in verse 7, he is forgiven of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Which as you can see on the screen, they're very similar words, but they're yet different. The word for uh, wickedness in the Hebrew is the word avon, which is a junk drawer for any kind of bad behavior. The word rebellion is the Hebrew word pasha, which is a legal word that means to break the law. And then the word sin is the Hebrew word hatah, which means to miss the mark. And so if you think about an archer who pulls back on his bow and arrow and releases an arrow, right? But he misses the bullseye. Like that's what sin is. It is missing the mark. And the point of God using these words is, please hear me. What God wants you to see here is that when he forgives, he forgives sins of all shapes and sizes. Which means, despite what you have been told, there is no sin that you can commit that is so horrific, that is so offensive, or that is so unique, that you cannot be forgiven by God. There is nothing that is beyond His limit. And if you don't believe that, just look around at these people in the room today. Get involved in a missional community. What you will see is that these groups are filled with drunkards and bad husbands and liars and thieves and bullies and womanizers and people who have committed all sorts of idolatrous sin and yet have all been forgiven by God. Why? Because God is forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That is what he is actually like. I think of the words of the prophet Micah. How many of you woke up this morning and read the prophet Micah? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, one person. That's awesome. I did not wake up reading Micah, um, but it's a beautiful book. You should check it out sometime. And in chapter 7, verse 18, this is what the prophet Micah says. Who is God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you, look at this into this word, you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Notice for the prophet Micah, and as we see in Exodus thirty four, that forgiveness is not just what God does. Forgiveness is who He is. Forgiveness is actually embedded in our God's character and DNA. This is why the Old Testament heavyweight scholar Douglas Stewart says the following. The doctrine of the forgiveness of sins on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends flows from the very nature of God. He does not reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character by which he delights in doing so. I wonder this one. Do you really believe that? Like meaning when you drop the ball, not if you drop the ball, but when you drop the ball, Like, when you screw up, do you really believe that God is actually eager to forgive you? Or do you believe he's kind of like, okay, Steve, you're coming to me again. Okay, I guess I'll 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 do it. I'll forgive you again, I guess. Like, if I can be honest, like, that's the way I have viewed God for much of my life. To where when I sin and when I screw up, I've had this thought of like, well, before I go ask God for forgiveness again, I better make sure he knows how sorry I am. So I'm gonna go like read the book of Leviticus, right? Or, or like just prove to him how committed I am and go share, have a gospel conversation with anything that moves, right? Then I'll go back to God and be like, now will you forgive me? And he'll be like, okay, now that you've proven you're really sorry, I'll forgive you. Guys, that's not the God of the Bible. The reality is, according to the scriptures, God stands eager to forgive you today. Like, in the words of Micah, he delights in showing mercy, and not simply because that's what he does, it is who he is. He is, by nature, forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, if you keep reading, it says in Exodus 34, 7, look at the next line, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Or, as it says in the ESV, he by no means clears the guilty. Meaning, the Lord is forgiving, but at the same time, He is just, which means when he sees sin, he doesn't just let sinners go off the hook. And listen, it is not because God is a cold hearted God who doesn't want to forgive. It's just because some people don't want forgiveness. You ever thought about that? Like there's some people like whether it's because they don't believe they've really sinned or maybe because they believe this fairy tale that says, yeah, I've sinned, but my good's going to outweigh my bad, and so surely like that's what God's focusing on, where's the good and the bad? Or because maybe they know they're sinning, but they're like, I honestly just don't care. I don't care what God has to say. There are some people who honestly, no matter what happens, they are just unrepentant, they are unapologetic. These are people who, despite God's warnings, refuse to repent. And please hear me, because God is good, right, and perfect, he cannot just turn a blind eye to this. He doesn't wink at sin and say, well, boys will be boys. Because one day, God is going to rinse the world of sin that is leading right now to the pain and the death and the suffering and the disease and the hate and the oppression that we are experiencing. Because God wants his children to experience the life we were created to experience, there is coming a day where God is going to judge sin. And in doing so, he will put the world to rights. And this is why as disciples, we can echo the words of the prophet Amos who said, Let the justice of God roll on like a river. Why? Because as disciples, as people who have taken our wickedness and our sin and our ability to cross and let it die on the shoulders of Jesus, we can now look forward, not in fear, but in hope to the day of judgment, because it is the day where God will do away with evil and wickedness once and for all. So God's justice is actually a good thing for us. God's justice actually releases us to experience the life that we have been longing to experience in Christ. And you're like, okay, that's all great news. But again, Jared, what about the kids? Like, what about the children? What about the line that says God punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents? What in the world could this possibly mean? And to set your mind at ease, it doesn't mean what it sounds like in English. Okay? And we know that because there are so many other passages in the scripture that contradict that reality. Um, For example, in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says the following. Parents... Are not to be put to death for their children. Isn't that great news? <laughs> that when your children sin, you're the one that's going to pay for it. Thank you, Jesus. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor are children to be put to death for their parents. So, kids, you can say Amen. Thanks, thank you, Lord. But each will die for their own sin. It's Deuteronomy 24:16. Here's another one. Exodus 18:20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Interesting. So if God is not saying that if grandma cheats on her taxes that he's going to wipe out little Johnny, then what exactly is God getting at here? And what scholars all agree on is there are really two layers of meaning to this text. And the first is this, if you're taking notes, when God says that he punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents, the first layer of meaning is that parents' sin has consequences on their children's future. And there are a lot of passages we could look at in the Bible that explains this or or shows us a picture of this, but I want you to look with me to Numbers 14 quickly. Turn with me to Numbers 14. And the reason I want you to look here is because as we've said before, Exodus 34 is the most quoted passage of scripture in the Bible by the Bible. And right here in Exodus, or in Numbers 14, it's one of the only places that we see the second half of Exodus 34 quoted. And just to set the context for you, the Israelites have done it again. Like, they've screwed up again. They're in a bad way. They have finally come to the edge of the promised land that God had promised uh, that, that they, could, they could inherit, right, under his strength and his power and his provision. And yet, because they are afraid of some ancient warriors who have some giants fighting for them, which, in a world of hand-to-hand comments, like having nukes, right, in fear, rather than going into the promised land... Rather than crossing the Jordan River, right, and taking the land God has promised them, they decide instead to choose a different leader rather than Moses that they think can lead them back to Egypt, which is a a pretty weird place to go because that's where they were in slavery for the last 400 years. So it's a really bizarre moment. And though Moses and his brother Aaron do the best they can to encourage Israel to put their faith in God, the talk's doing no good. I mean, literally in verse four, it says the Israelites want to stone Moses, Imagine that, after all Moses had done for them. And so they they want to stone Moses, and they rebel against God by digging their heels into the wrong side of the Jordan, to which God responds. Look at this, chapter 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I performed among them? I will now, verse 12, look at this. I will now strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than thee. Um, If you're reading this verse, by the way, and you're like, wow, God, chill out. You're going to destroy them for this? Go read Genesis 3 and then read all the way to Numbers 14. I promise you, if you were God, you'd kill them a long time ago. I mean, they are fools, I mean, they, they, they are repeatedly doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And God's giving them chance after chance after chance after chance. And finally, he says, enough is enough. As we talked about before, God is slow to anger, but he is slow to anger. Eventually, this says, enough is enough. So he says, I'm gonna destroy the Israelites. But Moses, here's what I'm gonna do with you. I'm gonna start all over with you, brother. And I'm gonna make even a greater nation through you. Now, if you're Moses, what would you do in this situation? I'd be like, amen that's a great idea God couldn't have said it better myself they're terrible I'm amazing so God if you actually could kill them and do it before they kill me that'd be fantastic that's what I'd said but what does Moses do look at verse 13 Moses said to the Lord but God then the Egyptians will hear about it which is interesting I was like God people in Missouri may hear about this right The Egyptians are going to hear about this. By your power, you brought these people up from among them. And they're going to tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If verse 15, you put all of these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, ah, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land as he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. You see what Moses is doing here? He's literally saying, God, before you destroy Israel, you need to think about your name. Think about your reputation. And then in verse 18, Moses literally is just going to quote back into God's face. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. He says in verse 17, Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. Look at this verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love then, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So Moses says to God, listen, as much as I would really like for you to save my neck, what I'm most concerned about, God, is your reputation. I'm most concerned about you being who I know you are, so the nations around you can see just how good you really are. It's incredible. It's incredible to me. And and then look what happens next. He says, God, don't wipe them out, forgive them. Verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Think about that for just a moment, what this means. Just think about this. God is about to wipe Israel off the map. But just so you know, like that means you and I wouldn't be here today. He's about to wipe Israel off of the map. Moses says, God, don't do it. Be who you are. You are compassionate. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in stiff-ass love. You are forgiving. And what does God do? He says, okay, you're right, Moses. I'll forgive him. (laughs) Is that not incredible to anybody else other than me? I mean, uh, this is amazing to me because... You know, we live in a culture right now that, uh, even in the church, it's just a prayerless culture. I mean, and I, I'm not like saying y'all are prayerless. Like, I'm saying, like, I look at my life and how much time I have. Like, I spend a little time praying myself in the grand scheme of how much time I have. And a lot of times that's because we err on one side or the other. And we say, oh, either God is really loving and he wishes he could help, but he's so weak and pathetic. He can't do anything about it, so why pray? Or we go to this side and we say, no, he's really strong and powerful. In fact, he's in control of all things. And therefore, because he's like this robotic machine, he's just going to do what he's going to do no matter what. I'm not going to pray. When the reality is God is love and he is in control of all things, but because he is also a relational being, we see he actually responds to our prayers. Like guys, your prayers change things. It changes things. And I don't know how this works. It's a mystery to me, but it clearly happens, and it is beautiful. God says, Moses says, don't wipe them out. Forgive them. God says, okay, I'm going to forgive them. But then look at verse 21. Nevertheless, that is a brutal word. Nevertheless, surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth... Not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. Not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Verse 31. As for your children. So now he's bringing the children into it. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected, but you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness, and your children, listen to this, will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. For whose unfaithfulness? For the unfaithfulness of the parents. Until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins, and know what is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community, which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in the wilderness. Here they will die. Welcome to church. God bless y'all. Let's pray and be dismissed. Have a great day. Now, clearly there is a lot in here, but for the purposes of our message today, here's what I want you to see. Please hear this. The Lord is forgiving, but sin is not. Sin is unforgiving. Sin, unlike God, is merciless and cruel. There are consequences to our sin that can keep us from experiencing blessings that god has told us we could experience israel's on their way to the promised land they're on the hills of a land flown with milk and honey and yet because of their fear because they refuse to trust god which by the way that's what sin is it's just refusing to trust god they actually end up missing out on this land that they've been longing to experience And not only does this hurt them, right, but they experience, I mean, their kids experience consequences for the sins of the parents. And and listen, guys, like we know this is just the way life works, isn't it? If a mom and a dad choose to start a meth lab and they get busted by the police and they end up in prison, are the parents going to suffer consequences? I mean, are the kids going to suffer consequences for that? Yes or no? Absolutely they are. In fact, the kids are going to suffer more than the parents are. That's why right now, I mean, we have a foster care system that is full of kids that are being bounced from house to house to house to house to house, and they're, and they're missing out on the stability and love that they were created to experience by a mother and a father right because of the sins of the parents. Just to bring it a little closer to home. Same thing is true with divorce. You know, if a mom and dad choose to get a divorce, the spot culture's ridiculous PR campaign that says a divorce is a danger-free zone for kids, like we know that's just a sham psychologists will tell you divorce creates grief and trust issues and insecurity and fears of commitment in the hearts of kids that will often crop up later in life. Why? Because parents' sin has consequences for their children's future. And that's the first layer of this. It gets even heavier than that. Because not only do we see next, the second layer of this meaning is not only the fact that consequences of sin are passed down to our kids, but our actual sins can be passed down to our kids, meaning that our sin, like our DNA, like our hair color, or our color of our eyes, or our physique, or our quirky personality, it can all be passed down from one generation to the next. Right, One generation's sin can often become the next generation's sin and the next and the next. I think about the story of Abraham. If you've ever read the story of Abraham, you'll see there are at least four, right? At least four different sins that are passed down on four different generations. You have the sin of lying, the sin of favoritism, the sin of sibling rivalry, and the sin that creates all this dysfunctional marriage passed from Abraham and then to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob down to his sons, Right, And again, we know this is true. It's why we have sayings like this, like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter, or the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. It is why many of us ourselves have said, I will never be like my mother. I'll never be like my dad until one day, right, to our dismay, we have the exact same dysfunctional pattern crop up in our life and then pass down and we sit in our kids. I think about my daughter, Nora Kate. Um, I think I have a picture we can put on the screen of her. And this was Nora, uh, back in July. Um, she decided that she wanted to start a lemonade stand in order to raise money to buy Bibles for the Muslims that we've been working with. So, super proud parenting moment, right? And, uh, as you can see, like, here's the thing about Nora. She doesn't only look like me, she acts like me. And here's what I mean by that is she doesn't just want to a lemonade stand, like, she wants to make sure, like, it is like perfect. And so she's got this yellow tablecloth, a yellow chair. She found a yellow shirt because she's selling what? Yellow lemonade. And she's going to mark it down. I said, you should sell it for 25 cents a piece. She said, I'm going to do it for five cents a piece. That's a smarter business move, right? So I can bring in more people. And then she said to my, my wife, I want you to call our missional community, call our family, call our friends and make sure you get them here. Cause I set all this up. We got to, you know, make some bank. And so, sure enough, she does a great job pulling it all off. She sells all the lemonade, raises the money, and it's fantastic. And I look back at this moment, and I want to say to my wife, like, yeah, she got that for me. You know, like, I'm a creative person. I'm an entrepreneur. Like, I start things for the purpose of blessing others. And that's true. But what is also true about this girl, and you see a little bit of this here, is she needs things to be perfect. And if it's not perfect, she can tend to freak out. And she can be upset with herself. She can be upset with others. She told me this past week she had a really bad day at school because she couldn't get her bat. I guess they were making bats in class. I don't know if Stephanie's in here. Miss Stephanie's in here. Anyway, they were making something in class. She couldn't get it just perfect. It just ruined her day. And I look at that. And I'm like, man, what's wrong with that girl? Then all of a sudden I sit back and I remember what I heard one author say, which is this truth. That parenting is often like watching your character flaws walking around on two legs. I look and I go, oh, yeah. That's where she got that from. Because, listen, sin, like our DNA, is in fact passed down from one generation to the next and then to the next. And here's why, parents, please hear this. This is why the greatest gift that you can give your children is your own pursuit of holiness. The greatest gift, mom and dad, that you can give to your kid is your own pursuit of Jesus, your own character. Please, parents, As soon as you can, begin to put to death the sin that is in your life. And because this is not only going to be for your good, but it's going to be for the good of your kids and their kids' kids, to the third and the fourth generation. So we do. Our sin does pass down consequences to our children. And we pass down sin to our children. And that's all bad news. But here's where the good news comes in. You ready for this? The good news is that thanks be to Jesus Christ, you can break free from sin. No matter how far the sin goes back in your family. Which means you can begin to stop the cycle. Right with you. No matter who you are or where you come from, you can find hope today in knowing that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you don't have to repeat the mistakes and the sins of your parents and therefore continue to pass that on to your children and the generations to come. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Acts 13, 38-39. I can put it on the screen for you. Paul is preaching and he says this, that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from every sin. How many sins? From every sin that the law could not free you from. There are two great truths about this passage, and we'll be done this morning, that I want you just to meditate on before we leave. And the first great truth is this, is that no matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done or not done, you can be fully forgiven today. You can be fully forgiven. Forgiven. Because at the cross, Jesus, the only innocent human to ever live, went and stood in your place and my place as guilty sinners because he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sins with his own blood. Because at the cross, Jesus absorbed our sin into his death and released now new life through his resurrection. You and I can be fully, 100% forgiven. This is, listen guys, your greatest need. I don't know what you think you need the most right now. I need more money. I need a better job. I need a different spouse. I need a better car. Your greatest need is to know you are forgiven, to feel it to the depths of your being. This is why Scott Sauls, in a book I read this past week, said that one of the greatest inhibitors to a flourishing life is the shame and guilt we carry around with us. The self-loathing that arises from the feeling of being unforgiven can leave us in a state of emotional paralysis. This becomes a root, listen to this language, this becomes a root cause for many of our emotional struggles. He goes on to ask the question, can you imagine what would happen if you really believe deep down in your soul right now that you are forgiven? This is the good news that in Jesus, God has forgiven all shame and guilt from sins, past, present, and future. That's the good news of the gospel. You can be forgiven. But Paul says it's even better than that. Not only can you be forgiven of sin, you can be freed from all sin. Meaning, you do not have to remain stuck today. No matter what anybody's told you. What was true of your parents does not have to be true of you. Their destiny does not have to be your destiny. You can bring your sin to Jesus and you can watch the handcuffs of pornography or lying or laziness or gossip or greed or bitterness. You can watch those handcuffs fall off of your wrists and onto the floor. How good of news is that? In Christ, forgiven and freed. Maybe for some of you today, you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, that's pretty good news. But here's the problem, Jared. What about for guys like me? What about for gals like me that are still experiencing, still reaping the consequences from sins in the past? What about for people like me who's reaping the consequences of the fact that I grew up in a broken home? The fact that my parents were addicts. The fact that I was beaten or abused or my mom or my dad like walked out on each other. What about that? What, about for, for what, what hope do you have for someone like me who feels like my life has been put on plan B and therefore like Israel? I'm going to now miss out on blessings that are irretrievable. Where's the good news for me? And here's what I would just say. I want to end by reading one more time a quote from Exodus by the prophet Joel and then we'll be done. Joe here is prophesying in a time of crisis in Israel in the midst of a disaster that has swept through the country like locusts through a field, it says in chapter 2. And here's what we read, chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, even now, he says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart And not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for here it is. He is gracious and He's compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And He relents from sending calamity. And who knows? He may turn and relent and actually leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. It is very true, guys, that your consequences or your sins have consequences. Your parents' sin have consequences. But what's even more true, and I hope you've taken this away in this series, that because God is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness and forgiving of every sin imaginable, Joel says, if you will turn back to God, if you'll repent, it doesn't matter how much water has gone under the bridge, he says, who knows, he may relent and he could respond in mercy and leave you with a blessing that is greater than you ever think could be possible. And so what that means then is, listen, in the aftermath of your sin or the sin of your parents when the locusts have left and you're standing in the wreckage of what used to be your life, because God is who he says he is, you can right now find in your hand fresh new seeds as you stand on a rich soil that is ready to produce a harvest that's greater than you could ever fathom if you'll just keep trusting the Lord. I'm going to ask that the band comes forward and let's just stay in a posture of prayer for a moment as the band comes forward. And would you just right now close your eyes? You don't have to close your eyes, but if it helps you from, from being distracted, would you just close your eyes for a moment and just ask God, what is it that you have for me from this series? What is it that you most need to be reminded of? That God is unchanging that unlike you and I, he's not fickle? Is it that he's compassionate and gracious? Is it that he's slow to anger? Is it that he's abounding in steadfast love? Is it that he is forgiving of every kind of sin imaginable? Is it that he's eager to forgive you? Whatever it is, I pray that you will feel, that you will experience God exactly as he is, and that we will respond according to the day. I want to pray for us, and then after that we will partake of communion. We have two stations here in the front, two in the back, gluten-free option for you in the back. And as we say each week, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, even if you feel like you blew it big time last night, this is for you. This table is for you. especially for you because it's a reminder that God is who he says he is, and we see all of that in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. If you're here today, though, and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you, rather than coming and partaking of the bread, dipping it in the juice, it's just bread and juice for you. It's not a symbol of hope for you like it is for Christians. I would encourage you instead to come talk with Adam. I'll be up here in the front. I'll be here as well. We'd love to, to talk with you and pray with you about next steps in your journey and your relationship with this God who desires a relationship with you. Let's pray together, and then we'll partake. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who is here. I thank you for waking us up, for giving us another day, God, I thank you that you are who you say you are, even if we don't feel like that's who you are. And so I pray that right now that, God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and open our ears. God, to just receive you, to receive this good news. God, please help those of us who have been following you maybe for years for this, this news not to become old. I pray that it becomes sweeter and sweeter and that we as a church would be passionate that we'd be zealous, that we'd be committed to going and now sharing with others about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.